Welcome to the Daily Dose. And I want to read to you from Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. I'm going to start by reading the first five verses. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Marlon and Kilion. There, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a, a, a woman named Orpah, and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi without her two sons or her husband. The book of Ruth is sandwiched between the big drama uh, that we find in the book of Judges, uh, the uh, great drama of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel. Uh, we've seen the big picture of what God has been doing, how he's brought his people up out of Egypt and uh, into the land that he promised them, a land that was ready for them to possess, populated by strong nations, even by giants with big fortress cities. And yet God had fought for his people. The enemy had been swept before them. And so they came into a land that already had cities to inhabit, fields ready to harvest, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that the spice found with these giant clusters of delicious, juicy grapes. A pleasant and secure land, a land of plenty. Uh, the story continues to show how the people move in to settle the land. They conquer it under Joshua, uh, but they quickly become forgetful of God's covenant relationship with them, with his goodness to them, his mercy and his faithfulness. They forget those things and they turn to the gods of the people in the land. They fail to drive out uh, the the. Uh, the people of the land and they compromise with them. The result is they find themselves often enslaved either by uh, the original tribes or by surrounding nations, the Moabites, the Edomites, uh, the Philistines. Uh, and so God sends judges, uh, prophetic champions and rulers who come to rescue, to liberate, to save the people from the enemies that are oppressing them. Uh, and these judges will rule for a period of years and they'll bring peace, prosperity and uh, return the people to faithfulness to Yahweh. But when a judge dies, the people quickly descend into sin again. In fact, life and civilization is fragile. 
And so the end of the book is horrific. There's some horrific stories at the end that show godlessness. And, and the, uh, the epitaph, epitaph is this, that uh, there was no king in the land. The people did what was right in their own eyes. Of course, God was meant to be their king, but they've turned their back on God, the true king. And so anarchy reigns. And in the end, there is civil war and Israelite kills Israelite. The longing then will be for God to act. It seems that God is silent and the longing is for God to bring another ruler, another judge, maybe even a king, a messiah, an anointed ruler whose household will reign. But in the meantime, we are pointed to this little story of one family and their ordinary life. And I want to suggest that this book of Ruth is, is so helpful for us for two reasons. One, there's the practical pastoral teaching element as we see what it means to be just one or two ordinary people living in a chaotic, messy, rebellious, cruel world and yet seeking to love and serve the living God. That's going to be important for us, isn't it, this week? Uh, and secondly, uh, this book gives us a little bit of a, a glimpse into the redemptive story. So it's about ordinary people. It's about uh, the, the story focused in on this one family. But it's also about God's redemptive purposes, about how God will bring about true and lasting salvation, how God will restore his people, how God will be faithful to his covenant, how God will bring blessing, not just to Israel, but to the whole earth. And a crucial part of that story is here in the book of Ruth. Uh, now, before we go on, I want to talk a little bit about genre. Uh, the ancient Greeks uh, loved their plays and their dramas. Uh, and... Uh, they had different uh, uh, different genres. Uh, two classical genres that stood out and effectively represented the polar ends of possibilities were comedy and tragedy. Uh, now, what is a tragedy? That's probably the more obvious of the two, uh, because a tragedy is simply a, so a story with a tragic ending. Uh, there may be beautiful movements of hope, uh, even uh, what we might call comedic stuff in uh, in sense of there may be humour. Uh, there may be great battles won along the way. Uh, but in the end, the condition, the state of the central characters, the heroes and heroines, if you like, at the end of the story is worse uh, than at the beginning. It's a tragedy. Uh, that idea is picked up by William Shakespeare. So he had his uh, tragedies. Uh, think of Romeo and Juliet or think of Hamlet. Uh, 
uh, in Shakespeare, uh, a tragedy finishes usually with most of the uh, the key characters dead. Uh, Romeo and Juliet poisoning themselves. Uh, the bloodshed uh, in the uh, court of the, the prince, the king of Denmark, before Fortinbras arrives to find everybody killed. Uh, so that's tragedy. Uh, comedy, on the other hand, uh, is a story, a drama, a play, a book, a novel, uh, a piece of cinema, uh, where the outcome is so much better, so much greater uh, than at the beginning. Uh, it may start with things going downhill, there may be danger and trouble, there may be deaths along the way. But the end of the story, there is hope, there is joy, there is celebration, there is victory. In fact, very often William Shakespeare would mark this out with a wedding feast. Think about Midsummer Night's Dream as a classic example of that. There's all of the confusion in the story about who should marry who, there's unrequited love, and yet at the end there's a joyful wedding feast. I want to suggest, and I'm not the first person to do this, Peter Lightheart has, Glenn Shrivener has in his uh, book Human Tra Tragedy Divine uh, Comedy, uh, th those ancient Greeks and William Shakespeare alike were capturing something of the way in which story works throughout history and around the world. Uh, because there is a story going on, it's the story of our creation, it's the story of the human race, it's the story of you and me. And the big question for us is, uh, is our story comedy or tragedy? Well, think about the Bible. And in the Bible, you will see tragedy. Uh, the book of Judges is tragedy. It starts with great hope. The people are possessing the land. There's, uh, there's these wonderful scenes. There's this humour. Uh, a left-handed judge goes in to uh, visit a king who's ill-prepared for the attack that is coming. He's surprised by the left-handed attack on him. He's slain. But his attendants wait outside, thinking he's still on the toilet. Uh, there's the riddles uh, that Samson tells. Uh, there's the humour and, yes, comedy of uh, a young man, Gideon, plucked from being the least of the least, being this timid guy and leading the people to a heroic victory. Uh, but in the end, the book, the story ends in the tragedy of the brutal rape and murder of a young lady and the civil war that comes fast on its heels. And yet I want to suggest that the whole story of scripture is comedy. Again, the point is not 
that it's funny. The point is that happy and joyful ending. The story of the Bible is that great hope and promise at the beginning. God creates this world, makes man and woman in his image. There's the despair, there's the downward um, uh, descent of sin, of the fall of Adam and Eve eating the fruit of their son murdering his brother, of the flood coming as a result of wickedness filling the earth. But the story moves on and its turning point is the coming of Jesus, the son who dies in our place and rises from the dead. And the end point that happy ending is the return of the son as the bridegroom coming for his bride for church there is victory there is a new creation there is eternity there is the end of sin and sickness and suffering so that there are no more tears there's no more pain no more death and there's the wedding feast the wedding supper of the lamb what about this little story sandwich between Judges and 1 Samuel, tragedy or comedy? Well, we're going to have to read it to find out. And that also helps us think about how we apply. We're going to look at each stage. But remember uh, that this is a play in four acts, four chapters. We're just going to read the first scene of Act 1 today. And so in order to understand it, in order to apply it, we need to see the whole story, to see its conclusion, to see how this is meant to apply to us. And throughout, we will keep asking, where are we at this stage in the story? So in these first few verses, what do we see? Well, we're in this time when judges rule the land and there's a famine that comes on the land. And I want you to notice the irony here. There is famine and there's a family living in the in the city of Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Uh, so here they are with a famine uh, encroaching, not knowing where to turn. And where they should be able to turn is to their own city, to their own town. This should be the source of food. This should be the place where hungry people can get bread. Uh, and yet there seems to be none. A little side challenge there. It has been my conviction for some time uh, that the problem in much of our world today is not that people are hard and closed to the gospel but that our churches have been closed to people that so often i find that people are hungry spiritually hungry and the question is when they come to us will they find bread will they find spiritual food will they find the bread of life but the other irony at this stage is this there is uh, a man and his wife, Naomi, who has the idea of fragrance and beauty and grace. Elimelech. Melech is king. Eli. Uh, Root El. Uh, God is my, God is my king. Elimelech. Elimelech. Uh, so here is this man who, whose name 
announces his trust in God as king at a time when there is no king, no ruler in the land, living in the place of bread. And yet what does he do? He leaves. He takes his wife and his sons to another country, to Moab. He departs from the land of blessing, the land of covenant, and seeks to set out on his own. His name says, God is my king, but uh, there doesn't seem to be trust in God at this stage here. Uh, notice as well the pattern here through the Bible. This is very similar to Abraham uh, leaving to Egypt and later to uh, Philistia. Uh, Isaac does the same, uh, seeking refuge from famine. Uh, Jacob will also do the same. So off he sets. Uh, there in Moab, his sons marry Ruth and Orpah. By the way, their, their names, uh, uh, Marlon and uh, Kilion, uh, those names, uh, there's a lot of wordplay in Hebrew and uh, they, they, they seem to sound like the same sorts of words that would be used for weakness and sickness. I'm sure that's not the original meaning. I guess it would depend slightly on pronunciation, uh, but the author will certainly be alert to that as he retells the story. Weakness, or weakling and sickness. Instead of God's people providing a place for blessing that attracts the nations, Elimelech exports weakness and sickness to another land. Verse 3, Elimelech dies. Um, so the two sons are married to Moabites, marrying outside of God's people, Orpah and Ruth. But the warning was in the names, the clue was there. Marlon and Kilion die and Naomi is left alone. Uh, this is a weak, a fragile, a very dangerous position to be for her as a widow uh, with two widowed daughter daughters-in-law that really have no loyalty that they can owe to her. This is looking like a tragedy, isn't it? Uh, but remember, we have to stop and ask, where are we in the story? And as I said, we're not even at the end of the first act. We've just come to the end of the first scene. Uh, and we are presented with the problem, a destitute, helpless, refugee woman, abandoned on her own. And it would be tempting at this stage, wouldn't it, for her to lose hope. Uh, to lose hope in the God of Israel, uh, maybe to throw herself on the mercy of the gods of Moab and Ahemesh. Will she do that? We will find out as we go through this during the week. It may be 
that this feels very close to home. Uh, that as we've read this story, you identify with it. It's thousands of years old, and yet it rings true to you. That feeling of being abandoned and lonely and exiled and hungry. And that might be that you physically have experienced the horrors of the plague, that you've lost loved ones physically. People have died. People have been sick and ill in your family as a result of COVID. Or it could be that you simply feel out on your own, perhaps uh, the loss of church, family and fellowship, uh, the experience of abuse in the family, uh, the realisation that you've not been fed on God's word. Well, I want to remind you again uh, that if we're experiencing these tragic moments in our life to stop and ask, where are we in the story? Remember what I've said. God's story, God's big story is not tragedy. It's redemptive, it's hopeful, it's comedy. There is hope ahead. We are not at the end of the story yet. We have not reached its conclusion. So I want to encourage you just to stop and to do what we're going to see Naomi does. To remind yourself where you are in the story that we are not yet at its end. And to ask where is God in this? And what does it mean to seek his will? And we're going to find out a bit more about that in the coming days ahead. So join us tomorrow for... Act 1, Scene 2.